The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. G'day everybody, sorry to interrupt those conversations, uh, hoping you're having a good chat at the tables. Uh, my name's Craig, if we haven't met before, and today is our last meeting for the year at City Bible Forum. Now, it's a fitting finale that we're looking at the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus' most shocking deed, the Rolling Stone, interesting title. Our speaker is Ian Powell, and I'm going to read, uh, if you open up your programs, I'm going to be reading the verses under the big number 15 there. This is part of the passage that Ian will be referring to in his talk today. If you'd like to ask a question about anything that Ian says or to make a comment, you can write something down on the bit of paper inside your program and we'll collect those up later. Okay, well let's read Mark chapter 15, 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him from Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked if Jesus had already died and when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. Oh, good afternoon. Um, On Sunday I had a, a very exciting day of contrast and part of the day was I went out to punch bowl to the Croatia club to watch uh, about 10 uh, fights, boxing, amateur fights. And um, I went there because a mate of mine was boxing and unfortunately he lost. Um, But uh, there was some reference in between the bouts to a number of great boxers you could buy pictures of. And of course, perhaps the best known boxer for most of us who don't follow boxing closely is Muhammad Ali. Um, Not the best boxer by any means, but a very fine boxer and a great athlete and a great character. One time, in the, in the height of his powers, uh, he was on an aeroplane and um, he didn't put his seatbelt on. And the hostess uh, said, you know, so you need to put your seatbelt on. And, and he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. <laughs> Quick as a flash, she came back and said, Superman don't need no aeroplane. Now put it on or get off. <laughs> I, thought, I love her. A quick comeback. Um, but one of, the, one of the other clever, memorable things that Muhammad Ali said was um, he was asked by a journalist one time, if you could be anywhere in history at any time in history, where and when would you like to be? 
And um, at this stage, Muhammad Ali had become, as you can tell by his name, a sort of Muslim, particular American sort of uh, uh, Muslim. But uh, as you know, the Quran is quite clear that Jesus did not die. Therefore, if he did not die, he did not rise. But Muhammad Ali's answer was this. He said, I would like to be outside the tomb of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning to see what happened. And now it's an interesting, of all the things he could have chosen, that's the time, that's the moment that he wanted to be. Because I think Muhammad Ali understands, as many people haven't, that if someone actually defeats death, that is an extraordinary, it's a universe shattering and a universe rebuilding possibility. Now Jesus is undoubtedly a shocker. Uh, in, all the, in all the possible senses of the word in many ways, depending on how you look at him, what part of his life you look at. But um, it was not much fun often to be close to him. It was often very uncomfortable. You may have noticed if you read through the Gospel of Mark that often even when his friends watch him do something which we would simply describe as a miracle, their response is often fear. So when he calms the storm... The response is not joy, or wow, that was a spectacular, what else you got up your sleeve? The response was fear. To see someone so, with such raw, unimaginable power that he simply speaks to the wind and the waves. Uh, I wonder if sometimes if you can, if it's possible to get so surprised by something you die. You know, people say, I died of shock. It gets particularly stupid and say, I literally died of shock and they're talking to you because the one thing they didn't do was literally die of shock. But, uh, you know, there's some argument. You may know of someone who's died of shock. Uh, I don't mean shock in the medical sense, where, you know, you, uh, loss of oxygen to the vital things because of injury, etc. But just where you've had such a surprise that you die. I've, I've had uh, at least one person, I'm pretty certain, I know, died of a broken heart. Um, there may have been other things, but in the end, it was just uh, deep sorrow that I think sent her to an early death. Um, but I'm not sure if you can die of shock. Imagine you could. Uh, one guy yesterday told me of a couple, uh, who a poor, very poor couple in Mississippi. They won this big US national lottery. Um, and when he was on television, uh, talking to the television, uh, all very, very, very excited. They'd been married for 37 years, grinding poverty, 63 million coming their way. He checked his numbers and then died of a heart attack. Now, that was, that was probably, tragically, dying of shock. That is, he was so, it was such a surprising thing that it just got too exciting. And there's a sense in which the disciples, when they touch near the resurrection, they, they, they are shocked to the point of it being shattering. And it's helpful for us to realise this is not just some sort of cute, nice story with a happy ending. So let's look at the thrilling shocker. If you have a look at the verses after the ones that Craig read uh, in chapter 16. It's a very short chapter, chapter 16, as you can see. And it's a very peculiar last chapter of the Gospels. That which is in John, Luke and Matthew is absent in Mark. There is no appearance of the risen Jesus. Um, we're told very clearly he's alive, but we don't get to see him as we do in all the other Gospels. And there's no sending of the early Christians out as there is in all the other Gospels. Mark is wonderfully peculiar in this way. Well, let's look at how this um, Jesus thrilled them and shocked them. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, 
They were on their way to the tomb. So you got the picture. They'd started the embalming process that Jews did, looked very different to the Greeks and the Egyptians, which are famous for pulling out parts of the organs and putting them in bottles and other things. It was just basically beautiful and expensive perfumes to um, uh, lessen the smell uh, as the body decomposed. And they had to stop because the Sabbath came. So they went out late nights uh, shopping on Saturday when the Sabbath was over. They bought expensive perfumes. They got up a first light to finish what they'd started. The sooner the, the, sooner the better. So they're on their way. It is a very ordinary business. I mean, every funeral that you go to is individually traumatic and special, but actually there's a sense in which funerals are the most ordinary events on the planet, aren't they? Um, Because in every culture, on every day, there are people dying and being buried. Uh, Don't misunderstand me. Every tragedy, every funeral I've been to, I feel the singular tragedy of the loss and the death. But it's the most ordinary thing in the world. Uh, Not everyone gets married. Uh, everyone has a funeral. So they're off doing, in a sense, an ordinary thing, although, you know, Jesus had been apparently the Messiah, the long-awaited king who'd been killed by the Romans, betrayed by his people. But Palestine at that time had quite a lot of these. Um, the extraordinary thing is how many of that have people who said, I'm the Christ, I'm the long-awaited hope. None of them came to anything as soon as the Romans killed them the movement dies, except this one, where it was quite small in his time compared to some of the others, and yet it exploded after the death of the alleged king. But they're off to bury this very special man, or finish the burial. Then they realise they've forgotten something in verse 3. They asked each other, who will roll a stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Now, some silly people, and they are silly, they say, oh, this is a silly story, this is just invented, because as if you'd not think to have someone to roll the stone away. Have you never, have you, have you never been in a state of extreme grief? You can forget your name, frankly. You know, to go... Uh, the women had always been as part of a group with men, and they probably got used to the idea that that sort of work would be done, that all the men are hiding, as we'll see as we go through. The men have completely and utterly failed. And the women are the only ones showing any loyalty to Jesus at this point. And they, they think, oh gosh, we've, you know. Um, and then you have the transition from an ordinary horrible day to a shocking day in verse 4. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Now, I won't bore you with the details, but this is not just a boulder. Uh, we've got, um, you can see these stones. I've seen one actually in part of Turkey but you can see them in parts of Israel. They're carved stones. They're about this wide normally. They're about this big. They often have a, a, a sort of channel that they run in and they, they're very useful ways to shut. The, they, they've got a chock to hold them open when they shut the slight downhill running. They, they can be open, but it takes a couple of men normally to push them. And uh, they get them. Oh, oh, well, they kind of weren't expecting it to be open, um, but that solves the problem. And then in verse 5, the shocks continue and get worse. As they entered the tomb, which is what they'd always intended to do, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the, on the right side. Quite a specific memory. They go on and there, there's a young man sitting, not a, you know, a young man dead, right, but sitting. And he said, don't be alarmed. And he goes and talks to them. So he, here is, they enter and tomb has been interfered with in some way and then the young man says to them don't be alarmed verse 6 you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified he is risen he's not here 
See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you'll see him just as he told you. Well, this is where it gets very strange. This young man is there. We don't know who the young man is. We're not told anything more than that here in Mark. Um, it, I would suggest he's probably an angel. I was chatting with a very intelligent man the other day saying, can't believe in angels. Then he described the angels in terms of stained glass windows, you know, the angels with the lovely white feathery things coming out of their shoulder blades. Uh, I hope they exist. They're kind of cute. But that's, there's no sense that that's what an angel looks like. In fact, the Bible, the Bible, if you take the Bible seriously, you can often meet an angel and just think you've met a human. It's one of the classic verses in the Bible. It says, remember to, to show hospitality to strangers because by so doing some have entertained angels unawares. When God sends a messenger, which is all angel means, it doesn't mean white feathery wings out of the shoulder blades, it means a messenger from God, it, it, you may well have met an angel for all I know. I met a medical scientist in, in Adelaide who thinks he's met the same angel three times. He seemed quite sane. At no point did the angel flutter. Um, but at each point it saved his life. Um, and he, he thinks... I don't know. I'm not a... Anyhow. But this is probably an angel. Who knows? Anyhow, it's a young man who talks to him. He says five things. Don't be alarmed. Um, secondly, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. This is what they're doing. One word, risen, in the original. He's risen. Now that's the whiplash moment. They've gone from at an appointment with the tomb and a, and a corpse suddenly out of the blue torn in the other direction he's alive he's not here see the place where they laid him and go tell his disciples that the plan is continuing as he'd said before that he'll meet you in Galilee now these, these few verses these few statements really do hold for us the very the, the heart the burning heart of Christianity it's about Jesus of Nazareth it's about a real live man of history uh, Nazareth was the place he grew up. It's his surname. Uh, that's the reason why we have lots of people with the name Hill because oh, there's Bob, Bob from the Hill, not Bob the Smith, you know, the who's the blacksmith, not that one. And that's how we get surnames. It was it was helping to allocate who, which, and so Jesus of Nazareth. He didn't wasn't born in Nazareth, but he grew up in Nazareth. So he's Jesus of Nazareth. It's his surname. Distinctive feature: crucified. And the, the tense that's used in the original has the sense of was crucified, remains always in the sense of the crucified one. It's a perfect enduring tense. One deed that defines his... In, that's who Jesus is. Any attempt to make sense of Jesus that doesn't centre on his crucifixion is bound to fail because Jesus keeps saying, I came to die. He sets up one ritual that we do again and again as Christians about his death. And yet so many people, intelligent, otherwise articulate people, will talk about Jesus as if the death is not the very centre. He is the crucified one. He's the shocking part about Jesus. He's risen. Right? And it's not a spiritual enduring influence of, as people want to say, right? the belief that life conquers death, love conquers hate, all this baloney people go on about. That is such guff, because actually the death of Jesus, if he doesn't really rise from the dead, proves the opposite, doesn't it? The death of Jesus proves that hate wins over love, lies over truthfulness, darkness over light. If he just dies and lies there dead, it, it's proof of the exact opposite. No, no, any attempt to make a rational, sensible sense of what Christianity is about is, in the next verse, he's not here. See the place where they'd laid him. The body has gone. 
any pretense to give an intellectual understanding of what energises Christianity and makes it alive and takes over so much of the ancient and the modern world as it is doing has to make sense of the resurrection of Jesus and the fact that the body is missing. It's not the enduring influence of, you know, Jimi Hendrix is not dead, his music lives on. Baloney! Jimi Hendrix is dead. His music lives on, but he's dead, sadly. Jesus has risen. Now, it's worth remembering what a shocking idea this is. It is not the common thing that religious people, that's what they do with their guy. They say, their guy's so special he beats death. Buddha has a good sensible death from poisoned mushrooms. Muhammad dies of old age partly through being poisoned by a, a Jewish woman who prepared a meal for him. She had reason to be unhappy because he'd killed her husband, brothers and father that day. I don't know why you'd let a person like that cook for you. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, he, he, she was unhappy. Um, we don't know, but, but Muhammad certainly thought it was the result of that poisoning. Um, Zoroaster dies in a war. Um, Confucius dies uh, partly of sadness uh, over his son's death. Uh, all these guys. Moses dies and is buried. It, it's just baloney to think that that's what religious people do. This is a weirdly Jesus thing. Right? That he's risen. He, he's beaten death. He hasn't just reframed death so we can think nicely, oh, it's the circle of life, all that sort of stuff. That's fine for Walt Disney. But it's just, that's not what Christianity is saying. It's saying Jesus, crucified, walked out of the tomb alive, conquered the thing that will conquer you. That thing that will end every single relationship you're in has the last laugh on us all, always wins with Jesus. He destroyed it. He kicked it to death. It is an extraordinary, shocking, shattering thing because the one thing we know is that when you're dead, you're dead. You're a long time dead, we all say. And, 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 and the, for the women to hear that this person who they had loved, who was crucified, they knew was dead, was alive, was um, shattering. Thrilling, perhaps. But then you finish up with the most appalling verse. It's the most, it, it, and one, one perhaps my favourite scholar in Mark's Gospel says this is the most disconcerting phrase in the whole of the Gospel. Look at verse 8. At this point, the women are the only humans apart from this young man who know what's going on. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb like children from a haunted house. They run gripped with terror. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid weird way to end the gospel some people can't accept that's where it ends but that's where it seems to end they were troubled, they were shattered into silence, they were told to speak they had good news to share but they were so shattered, look at the, almost every word amazed, trembling bewildered, afraid this was no easy thing to experience well let's look at some of the things that should have made it a little easier for him as it were, the shock absorber uh, there's a wonderful sermon preached by a couple of uh, African-American preachers and it works on this rhythm. It's Friday, but Sundays are coming. Some of you may have heard uh, the sermon done by one of America's great preachers. It's, a, it's worth looking up on YouTube. It's Friday and, and what the preacher does is he says, it's Friday, Jesus is lying in the tomb. His enemies are celebrating. It's a, he paints the picture of terrible defeat, but Sundays are coming. Right? And there's this whole picture of it's Friday but Sunday's coming. Now the disciples should have known that Sunday's coming because Jesus kept on telling him. 
He has a very good record on telling what's going to happen in the small things and increasingly and increasingly that um, this should have absorbed some of the pain that, that um, even though they had trouble believing that someone as powerful as Jesus and it's, it's easy to understand if you think about it, why the early Christians, the first Christians, the disciples couldn't take seriously Jesus' statement that he was going to die. How can someone who can control the wind and the waves, how can someone who can raise the dead, how can someone who can overpower evil spirits by the thousands in one hit with just one word, how can that person die before a bunch of Roman soldiers, good and all as they were? But once he had died, as he said, they should have known. In Mark 8, the first time Jesus tells them he's going to die, he says, and three days later, I'll rise again. In Mark 9, he tells them again that he's going to go up to Jerusalem, he's going to be handed over to the high priest, they're going to hand him over to the Romans, they're going to crucify him, and on the third day, I will rise again. In Mark 10, he gives greater details. He'll be tried, handed to the Romans, mocked, flogged, spat on, crucified, and on the third day, I'll rise again. They, they really had good reason in amongst the heartbreak to think, hang on, something's probably coming down the tube on Sunday. Uh, but it doesn't seem as if any of them could believe such nonsense that someone could actually come back from such a death. And yet Jesus said other things. He said to the disciples, you know, before he got to Jerusalem, go and you'll find a donkey tied up and as you're untying it, a bloke will challenge you and you tell him the master has need of it but he'll bring it back and he'll let you, they, they found it, it says, just as he said. Then he sends some of them in to, to find a place for them to have the last supper and he says, you'll find a man carrying water jug in his head, ask him, you know, and, and it was just as he said. Then on the night itself he says, you will all flee and desert me, and they did. He says, one of you will betray me, and he did. He said in front of them all, Peter, you will deny me once, twice, three times before the cock crows in the morning, and he did. I mean, he just gets it right time after time after time after time. This is a reliable man, this is a faithful man, this is a man who doesn't lie. He tells things about the future that he can't know, then you get to see it come true. What are you learning? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. They should have been, in a sense, on the edge of their seat. Right? Let's get the Sunday three days. But they don't. Uh, so in the end, they were shattered all that time. And I'm not. I'm going to mention again the women. The women are the heroes here. The blokes have completely lost at this point. I'm sorry to say, the men had had three years personal training from Jesus. It could almost look bad on Jesus. He had three years to train these blokes and at the crucial moment they all fled, hopelessly, and are hiding at this point. But at least the women are there, but they're shattered by this because they just didn't... They should have had some maybe about it. Possibly he's going to keep his promise. And this is, this is probably one of the great questions that humans... We will answer it, but often we don't even ask the question. This, this, this question, it's one of the most formative questions in your life, but most Australians never stop to think about that the question needs to be answered and what the answer is, and it's this. Who do you trust? Much more important than what you believe is the prior question. Who do you believe? Who do you think is trustworthy? Who do you think is knowledgeable? I mean, I love science. I read a bit of science here and there. But so much of what we are confidently espousing in modern day science in a hundred years will be a little bit of a joke. We were so certain that the laws of Newton were right. And now Einstein comes, well, not really. I mean, they're not bad. They'll get you the moon and back. They're fairly accurate. But fundamentally, they're mistaken on a number of things. And yet we were so certain that they were right. 
this is the way it works. The, the undisputed certainty of one minute, and a little, you know, a few years later, go, oh, really? Did they really believe that? Intelligent? Were they intelligent back then? It'll be just like that in a hundred years, friends. The arrogance of every... You, you read the most advanced thinkers of the 18th century, oh, they knew everything about everything. There was a serious thought that by the 1800s, science would be shut down, mission they would have understood everything. And then the side of the cave falls out, and oh my goodness, there's a whole other cosmos out there we didn't know about. Right? The question is, who are you going to trust? You've got someone who really knows the game, life, death, the universe, everything. You've got someone who'll tell you the truth even when it hurts. This is what you find in Jesus. So much sorrow that we endure, and we will endure suffering, but we often endure more suffering than we need to because we don't believe Jesus. At the end of the statement from the young man, with those five big statements, begins and ends with a command. Don't be alarmed. Verse 7, go, tell the disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. Now you've got it almost word for word back in Mark 14, 28, where Jesus says, um, you will all fall away, Jesus told them. This is on the night before it all happened. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. In all sorts of ways, the words of the young man are almost identical. Even the word he uses for risen, which is an unusual word, not the usual word the Bible uses for resurrection. But this one here is exactly the one from Mark 14, as he told you. If we would believe the promises of God, we would go through hardships and difficulties and anxious times much more peaceful and joyful because his promises are always reliable. So the one who smashes death, which could be bad news, couldn't it? Imagine if Joseph Stalin had smashed death. I mean, seriously, if someone like Stalin was more powerful than death, we're in all sorts of trouble. But it wasn't Stalin. It was a man who keeps his promises. He's utterly reliable. And lastly, there's something extremely beautiful in, in this person who rises from the dead, thank God. As I mentioned, the male disciples, complete shockers. They have failed more than almost any group in history. Uh, not one of them could hold it together. Not one of them died a hero's death. They all ran away. Total failures. Even from one of the most basic duties that the Jews understood, we've got this in their own writings, it's recorded even in passing in Mark's Gospel. One of the duties of a disciple was to look after the burial of the Master. So when John the Baptist is beheaded, by King Herod, in, in Mark 6.29, it just tells us quietly, his disciples came, took his body, mourned him and buried him. None of the disciples did. Not Peter, not James, not Bartholomew, none of them. They're all in hiding. It's Joseph of Arimathea. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, the council that put Jesus to death. Obviously has second thoughts about what they've done and does something tremendously brave and dangerous. He goes to Pilate and asks for the body of the man who the Romans had just killed for sedition. Right? That's a dangerous thing to do because the Romans normally, when they cut the head off, they then go and collect all the sub-lieutenants and he's identifying himself with Jesus. So he's not even a disciple. We know Joseph Arimathea, which we know it anyhow because it's in Mark, but Richard Borkham, a very fine scholar from England, has actually traced Joseph Arimathea from Jewish source. We know exactly who he was. We know his family tree, we know who his dad was, his uncle, his sons were. Right, this is a real life person who comes up and says, uh, can I bury his body? Can I at least give him a decent burial? 
even though he had a disgraceful trial and a horrible death. But not the disciples, they're hiding. The women at the cross almost take the place of the men. The three who are the inner circle, Peter, James and John, Peter, James and John, Peter, James and John, we hear again and again and again. And what do you hear? Three times in nine verses. Mary, Mary and Salome, Mary, Mary and Salome, Mary, Mary and Salome, three times in nine verses. It's like the women have taken the place of the men. To quote the great William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, all my best men are women. Uh, So it has been and so it often is. And he gives to the women the job of regathering the pathetic men. Now that in itself is beautiful because three days earlier, two and a half days earlier, these men had deserted Jesus. Not one of them had stood shoulder to shoulder with him. They'd all said they'd die happily for him, but none of them would suffer in any way, shape or form. What Jesus should have done, if he was a sensible person, would have sent a message to the women saying, rack off, you pansies, you treacherous wretches, you, know, you backstabbing, spineless, whatever else you want to say. right? Because they deserved it, frankly, and they knew they deserved it. And remember what Jesus said a number of times in the Gospel, if you are ashamed to confess me before men, I will be ashamed to confess you before my Father on the judgment day. These are A-grade sins they've committed. And yet what does Jesus say? He says, go and tell the disciples. I want to see them in Galilee. The original program is still on. We're still marching forward. It's exactly what I said in Mark 14, 28. I'm going to meet them there. And the most beautiful thing of all is he says, tell the disciples and Peter. Why does Peter crack a special mention? Some people, I think, completely ground and says, well, because he's the leader of the disciples. What a lot of nonsense. There's no evidence of that in the Gospels like this. It's because Peter was the worst of the disciples, the most boastful, had had the most privileges. And yet when push came to shove, although he was warned by Jesus, denied him once, twice, three times. Oh, he had good reason. One of them was a servant girl. They're great military experts. They'll kill you sinners. Look at your servant girls. He's hopeless. So why does Jesus say, tell the disciples and Peter? Because there's little doubt that Peter, who had a conscience, when he realised what he'd done, he went out and wept bitterly. He would have red-carded himself. There's no doubt he would have said to some friends, you go, I, I can't, I'm, you know, I, I'm out of here. You know. He didn't do what Judas did to himself, thankfully. But he could well have. Such shame. Such a horrifying moment of self-discovery. And Jesus says, make sure Peter's there, will you? I want to see Peter. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful word of grace. And if Peter wouldn't have disqualified himself, it's just as likely that some of the early Christians would say, Peter, really? <laughs> really? You think you should come? I don't think so, Peter. So Jesus makes it crystal clear he wants the worst and the most pathetic and the most treacherous there. This is what the, resin, res, the resurrected Jesus is like. He's not just someone who keeps his promise, but he's someone who loves to be gracious to scumbags and to forgive and to renew. And that's probably why Peter does go on to be such an impressive Christian, a bit like the Apostle Paul. Great sinners who see themselves in a moment of horror often appreciate the greatness of the Saviour more than some of us who may have been better and nicer uh, and haven't seen ourselves, as Peter hadn't until those last few days. He was confident that even if all the others betrayed you, he would not. 
and he's finally seen himself. A horrible moment. And yet now he discovers the beauty of the risen Saviour who masters and specialises in grace. As it says in Romans 5, where sin abounds, God's grace superabounds. Don't ever disqualify yourself from the love and grace of God. It may sound humble, but you're accidentally insulting the grace of Jesus. He is more than able to cope with your piddling, though ugly, sins. That's what he says. Bring Peter along. Well, friends, let's, uh, let's bring this to an end. Um, firstly, to say this, it's a peculiar end. The women know, they're shocked and shattered, they say nothing. I think part of what Mark might be saying was, Jesus, to the young man, to the women, to the disciples, to the world, that was the model. There was a moment where it froze with the women. I think part of it's saying is, don't be like the women. Don't let the good news, the whole ricocheting good news stop with you because of fear. But seek courage to speak where appropriate. And I wonder if you can just watch, because this is, this is earth-changing stuff. A moment from Q&A, an ABC program, one of the best that we've got, although deeply irritating. They had a program on dangerous ideas, and this is right at the very end. Which so-called dangerous idea do you each think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? Peter. The most, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. And that is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. Quickly, uh, I think you can't really leave it there. Why dangerous? I can't really leave it there because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibility to turn the universe from a meaningless chaos uh, into, a, into a designed place in which there is justice and there, and there is hope. And therefore we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It's why so many people turn against it. Hmm. Muhammad Ali was right and Peter Hitchens is right uh, and to see the, hmm, the universe is different to what we've always thought it was that death is not the undefeatable enemy Last, just um, one story and then I'll finish there's a guy at a church I used to go to uh, um, and um, he rang me up one time and said can we have coffee I said sure he said, um, he looked a bit shaky and I said, what's, what's wrong, Andrew? He said, look, he said, uh, he's the treasurer for our church and a very fine man. He said, the church is going to be really angry. I said, why are we going to be angry with you? He said, because I think I've just become a Christian. I said, well, that's great news, isn't it? He said, well, I've been the treasurer for three or four years. So I said, what, what's happened? He said, well, I was standing in church saying the creed, you know, the Apostles' Creed, um, and, uh, which he'd done many, 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 many times. He said, you know, believe in Jesus Christ and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered on the Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead and buried. On the third day he rose again. And he said, it was like someone slapped me across the back of the head and I suddenly went, my God, he's alive. He's alive. He's on the loose. He's still knowable. He said, I've become a Christian. I said, you may have been a Christian before, who knows? But, it, but that, he just said, just, he'd never really got it. And it really does change everything to realise that he, not death, has the last word. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.